And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. Well, I hope you've signed up for the uh, October 11 AAII Zoom meeting. There'll be a, uh, a link to that in the in the show uh, notes. Uh, but uh, for those who haven't heard this before, I'll make it quick. Uh, I'll be doing a 45-minute piece all about small cap value, some wonderful new research that I think you'll find of interest. Uh, and then uh, following uh, my presentation, uh, uh, Chris Pedersen's going to do a 45-minute piece on uh, on the two funds for life for retirees. I mean, it will also apply to pre-retirement, but but uh, to make sure that uh, people understand how to use the two fund solution uh, in retirement, we expect to get a lot of questions uh, from this particular uh, presentation. We will not be able to answer them all uh, that uh, that evening, um, but I but we will we we will take the the questions that we don't get to, and uh, and we'll include those. Uh, in our podcasts, at least all that we possibly can. And sometimes the questions are just, they're too detailed, too specific. Uh, We start getting into the realm of being investment advisors or tax advisors. Uh, For today, uh, I want to uh, take a couple of emails that I've gotten. Uh, They're actually from the same person. He knows a lot about the investment process. Uh, he has lots of good data and, uh, and, and been very kind in forwarding things he thinks uh, that I would find of interest. I have a hunch he does that for a number of people like myself. Um, but I, I, it, it, it's interesting because there's this challenge I have. Uh, as many of you know, the big uh, break in the work that we do for people came uh, when Chris Patterson joined our, our our team, and when I had the meeting with 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 uh, John Bogle, it was at that point that we uh, took a look at how we build portfolios, determined that they were too complex for most people, and Chris went to work and started putting together portfolios that did virtually the same thing in terms of return, very similar risk, but with fewer holdings. And I thought that was an important breakthrough. Now, what happened was we have books that we wrote uh, in 2012. And, uh, and not only are those books, uh, need, they need to be updated, obviously, and we just haven't had the time to get to that, um, and, and, uh, and certainly we've written over the years, the pros and cons of all sorts of different things that over time can change. And one of the topics that this, uh, a nice gentleman has brought to my attention is my position on target date funds. And yes, I have not been a great fan of target date funds, particularly going back many years. Uh, And in a way, it relates to the conversation with John Bogle because the target date fund is super simple. And he makes the point that even if super simple isn't the best, that 
it might be the best for that individual, that they'll be more likely to stay the course. And, and so taking that into consideration and another, I think, fascinating uh, piece of research that was done uh, by Wharton uh, with the help of Vanguard. They looked at some 1.2 million retirement accounts, some that had all uh, target date funds and some that had no target date funds. And the, the, the difference in expected return for the long term uh, determined how people were, what they were doing on their own. And by the way, the big problem was they tend to have way too much cash, not enough equity. I mean, there's some obvious things that do-it-yourselves have done to themselves um, in, in terms of building the best for the long term. But that study showed there was about a 2.3% a year better expected return using the target date funds than uh, simply, you know, kind of doing what felt right and probably doing a lot of market timing along the way. So with that in mind, you know, if I could encourage, and I'll be in fact in, in a, the next week or so, uh, I'll be sitting down with over 50 students at Western and I'll spend two hours with them. And, and uh, these are university students who take our class. Uh, and and the, the bottom line is, for many of those people, that target date fund is going to be the right solution. But I will have two hours with them, and I will show them the implications of building a portfolio with more information involved than what you would know about a target date fund, and with the warning that this is something you need to understand. In fact, I think this presentation that I'm making about small cap value uh, would even be helpful to them because really well, what Chris Patterson has created with his two funds for life is a combination of the target date fund and small cap value. And I'm going to even be more aggressive and recommend more than 10 to 20% in small cap value uh, for that first 20, 25 years. Uh, I'll, I'll be showing them why I think a 50% a small cap value uh, position would be legitimate. Anyway, the bottom line is, I believe, in fact, I just had an email a couple days ago, somebody wanting to know, do you think the four-fund strategy would be better than the, than the target date fund? And the four-fund U.S. strategy, which has 25% in small-cap blend and small-cap value and large-cap blend and large-cap value. Well, what we know is that based on a, a history in fact, now going back uh, some 90 plus years, uh, the, the risk of that four fund strategy is no more risky. In fact, maybe even less risky uh, by a lot uh, than the S&P 500 itself, which is basically what you get in a target date fund is large cap blend. You don't get much large cap value. You don't get any small cap or small cap blend or small cap value. And so, yes, I would rather somebody learn how to put together 
their own glide path so that they would have a legitimate opportunity to pick up an extra, in the equity portion, an extra 1% to 2% a year. And I think that's absolutely legitimate. There's plenty of evidence looking backwards that that would make sense. I would also be comfortable with the idea of instead of having four funds, just split the portfolio, half target date fund, and the other half the small cap value, particularly for the first uh, the first 20, 25 years. Now I'm talking about an investor who starts in their early 20s and they don't have to start adding bonds in the portfolio until they're 40 or 45 years old. So I think it's fair to say that I'm a huge fan of target date funds for people who don't understand, don't want to take the time to understand, but want to have their portfolio managed in a way that it is likely to leave them with enough money by the time you get to retirement. But I also feel very strongly that if you are able to build your own using index funds, using for the equity uh, part of your portfolio, I don't care about the internationals as much as I care about adding the small and small value. And that if you can do that, you will not take much, if any, additional risk In fact, one of the interesting things is that when you look at the volatility year by year, going back to uh, uh, 1928, and you've got the quilt. In fact, I'll include a link to the quilt chart so you can look at it. You will see that there is less volatility in annual returns with either the two-fund solution or the four-fund solution. The two-fund is the S&P 500 and small-cap value. The four-fund is 25% each of those four major U.S. asset classes. In either case, you are going to see that those portfolios are less volatile year-to-year than the S&P 500. And I think it would be worth the time to take a look at that quilt chart In fact, I I, I will send you a link that will take you to uh, several quilt charts, but check out the four-fund strategy compared to the S&P 500. Check out the two-fund strategy. I, I think it's a marvelous solution. Again, particularly during the period of time that you should be all equity. And the second topic that this gentleman has brought up has to do with the returns of the different asset classes over time. Now, I I think the information I will share at this upcoming AAII presentation uh, will make a very strong case for the idea of adding small cap and along with, with, with large cap. I don't care that anybody ever tries to small cap by itself. The question is, is it a good diversifier along with the S&P 500? Uh, And is it increasing the risk? Is it decreasing the risk? Uh, I think you're going to find that presentation of interest. But here is uh, what this gentleman has sent me. He sent me an article that was written by uh, Ken Fisher. And uh, Ken Fisher 
said, all major categories, then in parens properly constructed, change leadership irregularly. Totally agree. When you look, when you look at that quilt chart that that uh, you you'll be able to access uh, in the note field there, you are going to see that from year to year, you don't know whether the S and P 500 is going to be at the top of the pack or the bottom of the pack. As a matter of fact, uh, about 33% of the time, even though that S&P 500 is supposed to produce lower rates of return because it's of higher quality, about 33% of the time, it is a number one. But about 48% of the time, it's at the bottom of the pack where it's supposed to be. But in between, I mean, they're all, it's all over the place. It, it can be one this year, and it can be three next year, and two the next. We don't know how these things are going to, uh, are going to, to produce uh, year to year. And so totally agree with Fisher. It's an irregular process. And he says, nonetheless, folks love citing data supporting their beloved category. Now, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not using the word beloved when I think of small cap value. I think it is simply an asset class that represents a legitimate premium. And I will make it very clear in my presentation on the, four, on the 11th, that that premium is only there if you have a lot of patience. It is not a good idea for people who are impatient. So Fisher goes on to say, it's true that since 1926, small cap stocks have outperformed the market as a whole. But then he goes on to say, and I'm saving you a lot of copy here, but he goes on to say that if you strip out the biggest small cap booms, 1932 to 35, 42 to 45, 74 to 76, 2002 to 2004, large cap stocks overall beat small caps. Now, he's not talking small cap value here. I want to make, I want to make there's a difference. You know, small cap blend has a relatively small advantage over the long term compared to large cap value. On the other hand, small cap value has been much more productive than either large cap value or small cap blend. But I want to get back to this idea. If you take out these periods where performance was particularly high, that all of a sudden large cap stocks uh, don't look better. Well, yeah, that's true. On the other hand, if you take out the horrible returns of small cap in other periods of time, and then all you looked at were the normal periods of time, then you would find that large cap didn't beat small cap because you can't just uh, decide you're going to take out the, the best of times and leave the worst of times uh, in, in the example. So let me just tell you what I found. In fact, I, 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 this same gentleman uh, recently sent me a report 
saying that over the last 35 years, that growth had beat, had beat, had beat uh, small cap and small cap value. So I went to the DFA indexes. Remember, there are many different indexes that one can use to look at the past. So I've been using the DFA information, dimensional funds, which is based on the, the CRISP data out of the University of Chicago, where they've broken down all these asset classes. And I looked at that period from 1987 to 2022. And while the premium for small cap value has not been as large as it was in the past, the compound rate of return from 87 to 2022 was 10.8%. Small cap value was 13.5. Small cap blend was 11.5. And if you compared the large company indexes, the large cap value was 11.3 and the S&P 500 was 10.4. Now that's based on the data that I've been looking at since the mid-90s using the same uh, set of indexes. And uh, as I talked about, I think, uh, last week on on a podcast, there are six major small cap value, six major small cap blend, and six major small cap growth indexes that you can look at. And one of the slides that I'll use uh, on the 11th uh, will be the one that shows the different indexes that you could track. And those indexes can have a difference as of as much as two and a half percent a year over a 15-year period. So it really depends on whose index that you're looking at. And uh, and by the way, the common index that people look at is the Russell 2000, and it generally has a terrible return compared to many of the other indexes. Here's the argument for basically staying with large cap growth. They are companies that people know and tend to respect and think they are an important part of uh, everybody's financial future. We know from from long-term studies that those very popular companies today are oftentimes not the, the, the popular companies from for that, that are sitting around 25 or 30 years later at the top of the pack. But having said that, if, if somebody does not have the ability to stay invested in a portfolio that is 10 or 20% small cap value or even 50% small cap value, it is my belief that when the real problems hit the market. When you have the 50% kinds of decline as we had in 73 and 74, 2001, 2000 through 2002, and 2007 through 2009, when you have those 50% declines. Or, by the way, NASDAQ technology from 2000 through 
2002, and it wasn't a 50% decline, it was an 80% decline. A lot of people, I don't know to say most, but I can tell you, a lot of people bailed out, no matter how popular those names were, because the market was down and they were losing money and simply couldn't take it. And the point that I'll try I'll try hard to make when we when we get together on the 11th, and by the way, we're going to archive that presentation so people who can't make it on the 11th, they can watch it later. But the bottom line is you're going to see that the punishment historically in the bad times for the S&P 500 versus a 50-50 S&P 500 small cap value that that difference in punishment is very little. But there's a part of the Fisher writing that I, that I, I, I really I disagree with and uh, would, would be fun to, to have a little debate with him, and, and, but, and maybe someday I will. I, I know I'm thrilled to have a chance to, uh, uh, at the Bogleheads conference, to be uh, kind of going toe-to-toe with Rick Ferry uh, regarding, regarding factor funds. That's going to be fun for both of us. But here is what Fisher says. Large cap isn't inherently better either and as compared to the small cap uh, or, or those other asset classes. Although there is a huge realm of investors who think so, all equity categories over very long periods should net similar returns, although taking different paths. Now, the implication of that is that if you invest in small cap value and the S&P 500, that you will, if you wait long enough, they'll come back together they will have the same return. Either the small cap value will come down to the, uh, to the S&P 500 or the S&P 500 will come down to small cap value. You can see a lot of that in the telltale chart that we've shown in the past, and we're going to look at that chart again uh, on, on, on October 11. But the reality is, if you, and this is a... a Brand new piece that Daryl's put together. But if you dollar cost averaged uh, into a combination of the S&P 500 and small cap value, 50-50, over a 90-plus year period, that combination rebalanced on an annual basis added about six times the amount of money that you would have at the end of that period of time. And at no time did it ever come down. Well, I, I take it back. There was a short period of time and back in the 30s where it was, it, it was a dogfight. Uh, but by the end of the 30s, dollar cost averaging into that much more volatile underlying asset class, the, having that in the portfolio, the small cap value, paid a huge premium eventually. And, it, and, and they never came back together. They never had similar returns over the long term. 
And there's no secret to why they didn't. The reason that they didn't is because small cap value is more risky and is expected over the long term to have a better return. Small cap blend the same. In fact, John Bogle in a book, he showed his own telltale chart where it shows the advantage to small cap blend over a very long period of time. Now, you can say the point at which they will come back together is when our economy totally collapses. And yes, maybe they will come back together. Maybe almost nothing will be worth anything if, if that happens in some sort of a catastrophic way. So, you know, reasonable people can disagree. Uh, I, 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 and I think reasonable people can also be clever people who know how to choose the numbers they want to show. So one of the reasons that we not only show people in our tables, and remember, we have over 200 tables that you can slog through if you want to, but they show not just the returns of these different asset classes, but they also show the risks and the losses that were really sustained. Now, it's all hypothetical because the S&P 500 wasn't even in existence in 1928, but the academics have gone back and tried to recreate what it would look like, and it looked terrible in the 30s, uh, even though it was only hypothetical. But, but, when you build these portfolios to show long-term investors how good it can be, the mistake that I think, or not even the mistake, the thing that, that oftentimes is not shared with that investor is how bad is it is expected to be in order to produce the good return for the long term. And, and your investments are not just about the upside. They are also about the downside, which happens about 25 to 33% of the time. And, and or maybe it's even 20%, depending on the period you look at. But somewhere between one out of five and one out of four, or even a little more, you're going to have the market going down instead of going up. And our job as investors is to prepare for that. And if we don't like losing that much money, then you've got some fixed income in the portfolio. And if you don't like to have high volatility with fixed income, you keep it short to intermediate term. I mean, they're all pretty easy solutions. But the extra returns we talk about really come from from taking on higher risk asset classes. But remember, they're diversified. They're not depending on one company to make it. It's the group. It's the total that has to make it. And historically, even though there are a lot of companies that fail, in fact, when I talked about the Nifty 50 in the, in the, in the last podcast, you look at the companies that are in the Nifty 50 back in 1972, like Sears and Pennies and, 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 and uh, Polaroid and, and Eastman Kodak. There were a lot of what were perceived to be foundation type of companies that didn't make it as they anticipated. So um, I 
I know uh, this gentleman, Dan, is going to keep sending me good stuff to chew on, and, uh, and I hope from time to time that it makes good fodder for some good educational material uh, for you, and for me, by the way, too. So I do hope to see you on the 11th. I hope you'll tell friends and family about it. Uh, and when the archive piece comes out, then uh, at that point, you can share it. I think probably when we release it, uh, archived, we'll break it down into two pieces so that, uh, that, that you don't have to watch an hour and a half or two hours of material uh, to get through it. But uh, I hope you will at some time. As always, thanks for listening. Uh, we're not trying to tell you exactly what to do with your portfolio, but I will tell you, we are trying to show you the academic research, the numbers that I think you should be considering when you make your investment decision. And when you send a, find a better set of numbers, uh, I'm ready to look at them because uh, our job is to try to get the best that we can to you so you do the best that you can with your investments. Thank you. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.